as we move into ordinary time, we step back for a moment to reflect on the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Last year on Trinity Sunday, I shared with you an insight from the Episcopal priest, Cynthia Brugeau, about a principle called the Law of Three and how it relates to the Trinity. This principle, I think, can help us find a common path in addressing the issue of racism in our country. Bourgeau writes that the law of three seems to be inherent in the created world. Every new arising springs forth from three separate forces at play. First force is the active or affirming. The second force is, is passive or denying. And then the third force is the reconciling or neutralizing. Perhaps the clearest example is a sailboat. We might think that only two elements are required. A sail filled with wind is able to move through the water because of the pressure of the water on the keel of the boat. But a boat with those two elements doesn't go forward. It actually turns into the wind and stalls. The third, or the reconciling force, is the tiller, which holds the boat on course, and only then does the boat move forward. Flour and water make dough. Without the third force, heat, there is no bread. Human beings tend to be third force blind. We tend to see in either-or thinking. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul said, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Suffering is the first force, which meets endurance, the second force, or resistance. And then a third force, character, is the reconciling force which produces hope, something totally unexpected. What appears to be the resisting or opposing force is never actually the problem to be overcome. Second force, which we might call holy denying, is legitimate and essential component of every new arising. No resistance, no new arising. Today's gospel is a good example. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. God's love for the world is the active or affirming force. In the Gospel of John, the world represents all those who are opposed to God, those who have rejected God. So the world is the de denying, resisting force. In the face of rejection, God continues to love, giving us God's Son who pours out his life on the cross. This emptying is transformative. Jesus' death brings life to the whole world. From the cross, 
Jesus pours forth a new spirit who makes God's kingdom a reality on earth as it is in heaven. As Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Because we do not live for ourselves, to desire abundant life is to desire it for all, insist on it for all, work for it for all. In his essay, Notes of a Native Son, James Baldwin tells of an alarming experience he had in a diner in New Jersey in 1948. He recounted a surge of rage taking over him as the waitress told him, we don't serve Negroes here. He started to lose awareness of what was going on and ended up flinging a glass at her. She ducked and it shattered a mirror on the wall across from him. As he regained consciousness and bolted out of the diner, he writes that he, quote, saw nothing very clearly, but I did see this, that my life, my real life, was in danger. And not from anything other people might do, but from the hatred I carried in my own heart. As our country confronts white privilege and racism, Baldwin's words reveal what hatred can do not only to society at large, but to the individuals who bear it. The story of Nelson Mandela illustrates the transformative power of the third force. During his long and lonely years in prison, Mandela's passion for the liberation of his people expanded, becoming a hunger for the freedom of all people, white and black. He came to see that, quote, the oppressor must be liberated just as surely as the oppressed. A person who demonizes another is a prisoner of hatred and is locked behind the bars of prejudice and narrow-mindedness. Father Robert Schreider, who wrote extensively on reconciliation, insists that it is the victim and not the perpetrator who must begin the reconciliation process. God begins by restoring the humanity and dignity of the victim, a humanity and dignity which the wrongdoer tried to wrest away from the victim through violence. This restoration of humanity is at the very heart of the Christian understanding of reconciliation, at the very heart of the struggle for human rights. That God would begin with the victim and not the wrongdoer is consistent with divine activity in history, where God takes the side of the poor, the widowed and the orphan, the stranger and the imprisoned. Victims become the leaders of the movement towards reconciliation since they possess the vision that encompassed both the pain of the past and the promise of the future. The government of South Africa was afraid that Nelson Mandela would become a martyr 
if he died in prison. So they released Mandela after 27 years. And then they braced themselves for what might happen. But instead of seeking revenge, Mandela sat down with them. He said he was trying to understand them. By introducing this reconciling force, both the victim and the perpetrator were set free. Mandela then became the leader of the new South Africa. Last Saturday night, Genesee County Sheriff Chris Swanson was on duty when the George Floyd protests began. The protesters are the affirming, active force, and the police are the resisting, denying force. Swanson said he looked at the situation and realized this could really get out of hand. So he looked for another way. He found a third force. In this case, it was vulnerability. He removed his helmet, put down his baton. Rather than trying to dominate the situation, Swanson chose instead to listen. When he asked the protesters what he could do, they said, walk with us. And for the next two hours, the police and the protesters walked together with a newfound hope. And hope does not disappoint us.